Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Graham Wilson. Vegetarian Times magazine named him one of America's 20 superheroes. He has more than 30 years experience in lifestyle medicine. He's done extensive research. He's an educator, international speaker and author of several books, including Health Power, Healthy by Choice, Not by Chance. Mm. co-written with Aileen Luddington. The German-born epidemiologist, Dr. Hans Diel, is clinical professor of preventative medicine in the School of Medicine at Loma Linda University, California, and founder of the CHIP and Lifestyle Medicine Institute. We'll find out exactly what that is as we speak to my guest today, Dr. Hans Diel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Absolutely so, right. If I'm not mistaken, and we haven't heard you yet, but you're on about lifestyle choices and proper eating, right? Yes, I am. So it's not necessarily new, this idea, but if you look around our society today, people don't have that idea. They don't understand what food is doing to their bodies. Am I right? No, basically, we have been pushed into a very modern, high-tech uh, kind of a diet where we no longer eat foods, but we eat industrialized products. Uh, we have replaced potatoes with potato chips. We have replaced uh, beans with burgers. We have replaced corn with Doritos. We have uh, replaced uh, water drinking with soda pop. And we have gone from lean to large. So, you know, there are some significant changes that have taken place, particularly in the last 30, 35 years. And during that time period, we have seen a dramatic increase in diabetes type 2. We've seen a significant increase in uh, high blood pressure problems. We've seen a tremendous enlargement of the human body. And we have seen a tremendous money being spent by governmental sources for the management of chronic diseases that may be making us feel better because they remove some of the symptoms, but they really don't cure the disease. The cure has to come from helping people to attack the causes of these diseases, how we eat, how we drink, do we get enough sleep, do we handle our stress well, do we exercise? You know, these are the big things. Do we smoke? These are the drivers of these modern diseases. When did you come to look at this? You're an epidemiologist, mm. right? So you look at the causes and um, the locations of diseases, mm. don't you? Yeah. My uh, wake-up call came when I saw an article entitled uh, Corellia. Corellia, the Valley of Beautiful Widows. Widows. Beautiful widows. Uh, you know, what's hiding behind this uh, attractive-sounding phrase? Well, what happened was behind these kind of nice words was a grim fact that many of their husbands had died at the age of 35, 45, 50 years of age. You would find two men speaking to each other. They're 45 years of age, and they talk to each other. Hmm, have you had your heart attack yet? This is Karelia. This is Finland. The highest rates of heart disease in the world, 1972. And then one of the young whippersnapper epidemiologists, one of these young physicians said, I have a suspicion, I have some idea what's causing that, and I'm going to help you ladies not to become new widows, and I'm going to help you to have husbands that will be alive and around. One has to ask the question, were they not eating the same as their wives? Oh, you have to understand, when it comes to their gender differences, um, women are usually protected by certain hormones until they get into 
postmenopausal states. And then they usually catch up with the men. So when they're 30, 45 years of age, they're fine. They're getting the heart disease, expressing themselves by about, about 45, 50, 60 years. Okay. Mm. So you became interested at that time? Oh, this, big time, yeah. yeah. And uh, what path did that lead you on? Well, it led me away from the idea that we were on at the time that uh, the cause of heart disease was largely related to stress. We talked about type A personalities. Um, many of the medical colleagues of this young uh, physician epidemiologist in Finland kind of uh, set him aside and said, well, he just doesn't know anything about uh, the role of stress because we have stress in Karelia. We are right next door to the big bear, Russia. And so we had this somewhat simplistic notion that it was stress that was causative. And yet, when you think about it, during World War II, when Nazi armies invaded the Scandinavian countries, particularly Norway, the heart disease rates dropped dramatically within one year. Why? Because of the stress protecting them? No, it, it changed because the Nazi armies, <laughs> they took all the livestock. They took all the butter and the eggs and the cheese and the meat and the chickens and everything from the people who feed their armies, their soldiers. And all of a sudden, the people had to live on very simple foods. Could it be that maybe that was the big change that contributed to the healthier population? Less diabetes, less high blood pressure, lower weight, and a significant drop in heart disease. These were stunning findings because it all of a sudden shot holes into the idea that it's stress that's causing that. I spoke to a woman about five years ago who was 93 at the time, and she came through the war in London, and she said, we didn't have a lot to eat, as you've just mm. described. She said, but we were healthy. And she put it down to the same thing. There, there wasn't much. Everything was rationed. Uh, yeah, I can give you a very grisly um, sideline here. Uh, you know, I come from a German background, and so this is not really all that easy to talk about, even though my family was in the resistance movement at the time. But what happened is that some of the survivors of the concentration camps, I mean, this is the ultimate stress. Mm. I mean, there's nothing worse than that. Those who actually came through these concentration camp experiences, they somehow got through it. Maybe the Allies came just in time to close this thing down. Mm. Those who had been survivors of this grisly, incredible, stressful experience living on very, very, very simple food, same our starvation diets, when they came out and then tragically, perhaps they were killed in a car accident, they looked at the coronary arteries of these people, they were clean. Again, you know, it tells us something that maybe it's not so much the stress per se, but maybe it is a simpler natural or somewhat natural diet. Now, sometimes I have people arguing with me, and that's a very good argument, actually. And they say, well, maybe it's the stress that causes you to seek out the high fat, the high sugar, the, you know, the comfort foods. Comfort eating, and yeah. in that sense, yes, I, I think there's a special role stress does play, but it may not be the direct cause. It works through the change in how we relate to the stresses. Yes, you're not belittling the effect of stress on health no. at all. Um, we understand that. The time that this current 
epidemic, obesity epidemic that hit our societies. We're talking Australia and America, very similar societies. New Zealand is also way up there with incidence of heart disease. When did that happen? We think we can pretty much date it to the 1970, 1975, 1980. It was, it was at that time that uh, we shifted from eating at home to eating out. We began to shift from slow foods to fast foods, and a company emerged that has some golden arches, and they became an instant success. They knew how to market these kind of fast foods to the population, and then they had many, many competitors coming into the picture, and so now you have a new world appearing. People no longer eat at home. Women become nutritionally illiterate, Seriously, because they also join the workforce, so there's very little time to cook. And so you rely more and more on processed food, and you have the shift now from foods to industrialized products. And I think when that happens, you basically settle for foods that are high in fat, high in calories, high in sugar. These are processed products. And, you know, when you do this, you actually diminish very significantly the richness of the micronutrient density in these foods. Mm. Okay, so the, we're no longer eating food as grown. Yeah, that's correct. And I think um, a lot of people now don't know how to do that. They think a pile of beans, some potatoes, what do you do with that? How do you make that interesting? Besides, they don't have an hour or two hours to prepare the food. What they don't know is... And that's why we teach it in our CHIP program, the Complete Health Improvement Program, which is really a 35-hour education program in depth. What we help them to understand is that you can use a... Now, I don't know if you have those special little things here. A crock pot? Yes. A slow cooker? Yes. Yeah, we show them how to uh, prepare their meals. You throw some of the foods in at night, in the morning it's done. I mean, I can cook a breakfast. I do this at home all the time. I mean, my wife brags. My husband is the only German man that cooks for his wife one-third <laughs> of all the meals. What she doesn't tell them is it's just breakfast, okay. and that's the easy thing yeah. to do, right? I mean, you put it into some crock pot. I put some seven-grain cereal, some nine-grain cereal, whatever you can find, some oats, and I put it on low heat, put some oil in, of course. In the morning, you know, wake up and everything smells beautifully wonderfully and you really feel good that you're up and alive and you have a good breakfast you add some uh, silk milk you add some almond milk you add some whatever you want to add and uh, you add some uh, nuts on top of this uh, you have some fruits with this you have a couple of uh, whole wheat slices of bread and you're on your way so you have a good plan for that don't you you have to plan for that you have to make that happen uh, we're sitting on a university campus now and if we were to go there's a building next door where food services are in abundance. You would walk those halls and look at all those stalls in vain to try and find something healthy. And I'm not trying to dismiss people who are there trying to earn their living. But, I mean, if I go out there, as I often do for lunch, and try and find something, you know, there's an abundance of fries, sugary drinks, a lot of bread um, stuffed with... The healthy alternative is, is the vegetables, but they've been roasted. They look very sad. <laughs> yes, you know? yes, that's true. Why is that happening? And, and a student here asked me one day, we interviewed nutritionists in these very studios. They work at this university. If they know all these facts, why do we not mm. see that on campus? Yeah. So what is driving that market? Well, <laughs> we're looking for taste sensations. You know, there is a drive towards uh, 
these tasty foods. There's no question about this. Um, uh, these uh, foods are very tasty, and people that manufacture these foods or process foods and turn them into industrialized products. Now, this is a profit business model, right? Yeah. They know exactly what to do. As a matter of fact, many people don't know that many of these large international um, food processing companies, call them junk food companies, whatever you want to call them, uh, people that are excelling in turning food into products, many of these companies have been acquired by Philip Morris. Tobacco company. Tobacco giant, mm -hmm. because they have diversified and do you think, I mean, do you think that Philip Morris knows something about habituation? Do you think that Philip Morris knows something about addiction? They will tell you that their products, their foods are made to allure, that's a very word they use, to allure people. And so these are then um, environmental aspects that make it so convenient to reach out. I have no more time. I just grab as I go, catch as you can, and, uh, you know, it tastes good. You unwrap the wrapper, that's, and you're on your way. But to think in terms of uh, some healthier foods, it's almost becoming uh, something of the past. Our guest today is Dr. Hans Deal, Clinical Professor of Preventative Medicine in the School of Medicine, Loma Linda University, California, and founder of the Chip and Lifestyle Medicine Institute. Well, let's talk about those healthier foods then. Well, first of all, explain to us what the, the CHIP program is. I mean, you've helped, I read somewhere, 70,000 graduates plus to a lifestyle that is much more conducive to health. Mm. And, and explain some of the success stories. How does, mm -hmm. how does this turn people's health around? Yeah, I mean, it's almost too simple to have credibility. We have underestimated the power of foods as it comes in nature to us. We have not really fully realized that the body is in a default position of wanting to heal itself if you feed the right foods. I mean, you cannot run a Ferrari very long on diesel fuel. So, I mean, what we put in is very important. And so, when you look at the scientific evidence today, uh, most of the large um, uh, foundations, some of the protectors of our health, the Heart Association, the Stroke Association, the Cancer Association, you know, they have all these organizations, both here in Australia, New Zealand, and in the United States, maybe slightly different names. They will always tell you, eat more fruits. They will always tell you, eat more vegetables. I mean, in America, now we're recommending, we used to recommend five a day. Now we say maybe you should go up to nine a day to be a more ideal um, in the traditional program. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains. I mean, they really specify whole grains, not just white flour things. Because if you just say eat more grains, I mean, that's cakes and pies and pizzas, right? Mm. And then number four usually is eat more legumes. Legumes beans, lentils, they're all high in fiber uh, where we actually have a deficiency in this country and also in Europe and as well as in all the Western countries. When you think about this, we take a perfectly good food and then we refine it and usually the uh, fiber uh, is left behind. When you take whole grains, the first thing you do is you mill away the fiber so that it doesn't spoil. And so when you have now refined white flour, it's safe. Not even the weevils get, would get in there and eat it. I mean, they know better than we do. 
So you have fruits and vegetables and whole grains, and you have some uh, legumes, and maybe you ought to have some nuts and some avocados, you know, some seeds. These are the basic foods. You know, then apply some water, daily water consumption, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten glasses of water, get into an exercise program, be a happy trooper, you know, look at the positive side of life, be a grateful person, be alive, and you can do something nice to someone else, random acts of kindness, you know, and you have a kind of a success formula. Be careful with the alcohol, you know, be careful with the cigarettes, and you have a pretty good uh, formula for living a long and happy life. I have to tell our audience who, who be listening on radio that you're a picture of health. So it's obviously working for you. Well, I'm only 40 years of age, right? <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> I used to be 30 years ago. How, how can you have this, um, this CV being only 40 years of age? It's incredible what you've achieved. No, no, no. I said it was, that was 30 years ago. Okay. No, I'm 71. Well, so um, the, it's a lifestyle for all of us, but how are we going to get it in our busy lives? That's the problem. I was talking to a diabetic this morning, in fact, and he said he was in the early 60s, and he said, I didn't ever want to end up like this, but I am. And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm having four cartons of Coke a week. <laughs> I said, well, stop that. He said, but I like it. I'm thirsty. So... It comes down to addictions. You know, we know what's good for us and what we shouldn't eat, but it's so easy to return to the yeah, bad stuff. It does. And that's why I mentioned what's around on campus. You walk out there and it's all mm. out there before you. Well, the environmental cues, right? It's there. We reach out. It's convenient. Yeah. But, you know, our lifestyle perhaps should not be so much based on, well, I like it, but rather on intellectual and moral qualities. I mean, we are intelligent human beings, and uh, we need to recognize that when you consume processed meat products, the World Health Organization, a couple of years ago, after an extensive research, proclaimed to the world, you have to be careful, because even small amounts of processed red meat, sausages, bacon, these kind of things, are not just contributing, but they're the cause. They're causative for colon cancer. So, you know, we, we, we hear these stories and we file them away. Not really. We don't really think about it too much because the next day there's another story. And it's just the opposing viewpoint because you have so many powerful lobby groups and interest groups that all want to have their research being published. And the television and the media in general and the newspapers, they live on having controversial subjects. Mm -hmm. So the public is totally confused. And that's why our TRIP program uh, really... Is very committed to the idea that you, what you need to do, you have to provide a comprehensive educational curriculum. So that's why it's about 30, 35 hours of intensive education. It's education, education, education. Mm -hmm. It's motivation, motivation, motivation. And it's also inspiration and inspiration. And so we conduct these programs in groups. So there's a social supportive network so that we can face the culture that says, eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow the doctors will take care of you. And yet we are very limited, really, what we can do with regard to these chronic diseases. I mean, we can do a fabulous job when it comes to infectious diseases. We have an antibiotic, and seven, ten days, you're fine. And that's what people think happens with chronic disease when it comes to diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and cancer. Well, the doctors will take care of me. I mean, we understand now. When you have a bypass surgery, it could save your life, yes. But do you know that 12 to 18 months later, 
40% of these veins that have been grafted into the coronary artery trees are no longer functioning because nobody told the people, I may have saved your life, perhaps, but I didn't tell you. You've got to be on a very, very different diet. You have to let go of these industrial products. You have to move more towards fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and maybe a few nuts. And you know, these are the kind of things. That's what falls through the cracks when it comes to medical care. And I think that's where we need to really improve and help the people to, to help themselves. And what we need to do is we have to do it in groups, husband and wife together. Mm. If there are children still at home, we've got to help the whole family. Because you cannot isolate a person and say, I want you to eat these foods. The rest of us, we are just digging in. We have the corpses. No, I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, we have to worry about these kind of things. We have to worry about the cholesterol content. We have to worry about the saturated fat content. And this is only found almost exclusively in animal products. So in some ways, we have to perhaps cutting back on animal products and maybe also cutting back on these industrialized food products like these processed foods. Mm. Maybe we should cut back on the potato chips, you know, the M&Ms. But you see here again, these companies that turn food into industrialized products, they have done the research. They have done brain research. They have learned that if you put just the right amount of sugar into an M&M, it challenges, it hits your pleasure center in the brain within less than a second after touching your tongue. And you cannot eat just one M&M. Is that right or wrong? I mean, you can eat a whole bag. Mm. Then you have peace. And the same thing is true with the amount of salt they found out. I mean, you have one Pringle or do you have to take the whole tube, right? Yeah. You cannot stop after one. And they even tell you on these packages, once you pop it, can't stop. you cannot stop it. <laughs> you know this too, right? And then, and then you have the fat content. Mm. You know, all these things, they create a pleasurable mouth oral experience which hits the pleasure center of the brain. And at that moment, the food is hijacking the brain waves. And you become addicted. You hear people say, oh, yes, but moderation in all things. A little bit won't hurt you. Yeah, that's, that's a formula for disaster because moderation is very subjective. I mean, you know, what does it mean to be moderate? You know, I eat only one bag of M&Ms or I just eat one M&M. Mm. I mean, I only eat one steak a day. Uh, that's very moderate for some people when other people eat three meat servings a day. So it's a very, very dangerous thing mm. because our culture has shifted so far towards one side of these foods that being moderate is not enough. You have to go as far as you can. And the further you go towards eating more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, maybe some nuts and some uh, avocados, the further you go in that direction, the more powerful the therapy is in reversing diabetes in reversing heart disease, in reversing high blood pressure, in reversing overweight, you can actually, we have the data for the last 20 years in place, 25 years in place, that you can reverse these diseases, you can cause a melting down of the plaque, you know, the, the mm. atherosclerotic plaque within the coronary arteries. Yes. You can actually melt these things gradually down. Now, people listening to you will think, well, that sounds hopeful, but that's not for me. My doctors put me on these things, said I'll be on them for life. I've done too much damage. Wrong. What? Okay. Wrong. Address that. Absolutely wrong. You know, my medical, I'm in a medical school, and my medical colleagues have no clue about nutrition. We don't teach nutrition. 
Our professors that teach physiology and anatomy, and they have no idea unless they have trained themselves. So I think uh, physicians are not very reliable sources of um, valuable information when it comes to good nutrition and uh, the practical aspects of how I should eat. We know something about the biochemistry of foods, but when it comes to practical things, what is a good dietary breakfast, right? Mm. I mean, people come to me and say, my doctor said I should have a breakfast every morning, so I'm going to McDonald's every morning. Not the right idea. So we have to actually help people not just to strengthen their will, but also their skill. We have to tell them, this is perhaps how you might want to take a look at uh, a new breakfast. You know these weed bix They're made here in sanitarium. That's a great product. They're minimally processed foods. You can have hot cereal. You say, well, I don't like hot cereal. Well, let it cool down. I mean, <laughs> I mean but you know, the answer is not going to McDonald's and have a McNugget. Mm. So, you know, we have to really become very practical in helping people. We have to help this new generation to learn something about what is real food like and how do you really prepare it? We have a big task before us. And then, you know, we have to also be aware that many of our dietetic colleagues, our nutritionists, you know, they're also very subtly influenced by powerful lobby groups that provide major grants to universities. And that could possibly, wouldn't you think, influence how we teach these subjects? So I've been trying to be very, very gentle and very diplomatic, but this is something that we need to think about. Coming back to the medical profession, like you said, they're good when you've broken something, uh, when you have an infectious disease. They have a very short time frame to deal with everybody. How do we get them to say, your whole lifestyle is making you sick? Correct. You need to turn that around. Is your doctor the best person to see in that case? Well, that's a very, very insightful question. Uh, you know, in America, the uh, GP has about 15 minutes. Mm. Half of that time is spent entering the data that you collect into the computer. Sure. So you have about seven, eight minutes left. In seven to eight minutes, what you have to do, because the system is very, very tight, so what you have to do, you have to take those seven, eight minutes, and you have to diagnose the ill, you have to match it with a pill, and you have to send them home with a bill. Next one, please. Mm. So your question is most appropriate. How can we teach people a new lifestyle? You know, there's a small country called Lithuania. It was under d the domination of the Soviet power. Then in 1991, they became free, and they now came back to the democratic principles, freedom, enterprise, free market system, and so on. And these people really went for broke. But with those new concepts also came the Western foods into the country. And when you look at Lithuania today, it's a country that has more junk food than probably any country because they were deprived for so long and then don't in, they're just enjoying what they have now. Mm. And what happened? Heart disease rates dramatically increased, diabetes increased, obesity increased, and the country came to me and they said, what can we do? I said, well, um, there are several things you can do. Number one, you can educate the people. Number two, um, you can develop social... Uh, constructs at the government, you can perhaps put higher taxes on cigarettes, maybe on uh, soda pop, on some of these non-desirable foods. And they said, well, how do we educate the people? And, and we came to the, the concept that maybe have to, we have to develop a health professional, not a disease professional. Mm. And a health professional would be someone that would be really um, centering their expertise on clinical nutrition, 
therapeutic nutrition that is, that understands physiology of exercise and knows how to motivate people, that understands the psychological things of behavioral change, and maybe a person that can talk to people in a language that they understand. That's a new one, isn't it? Yeah. So that's what they have done. So they developed in the last two years a master's degree program in lifestyle medicine focusing on teaching those forgotten arts. And so there are many physicians now that are taking this two-year master's degree in lifestyle medicine, and they said, we have never had so much fun because now we see we can turn diseases around. I used to have diabetics, and I would give them medication for the rest of their lives until they die. And it's usually more and more and more. Those type 2 diabetics. Mm. Now I, I give these people an alternative. I said, I can give you some medication, or would you be willing to make some lifestyle changes? And we have a special group we meet regularly. We have a 30-hour education program. In this case, if I may say that, it's the CHIP program, and that's what they do in Lithuania. Mm. And uh, then you may not need the medication. And he said, within three days, I have to reduce the, the insulin. Within two weeks, I have to further significantly reduce the insulin, and 40% of the diabetics on insulin for type 2 diabetes are no longer on insulin. They're freed from the disease, and I am overjoyed as a professional because that's why I wanted to go into medicine to help people. Not everybody's going to agree on what is the best thing to put in your body. Some people say you need omega-3, you need iron, you need to eat meat to get these things, you need vitamin B12. How do you address that with a plant-based diet? In general, if you follow a plant food-centered diet and you're focusing also on whole foods rather than processed foods, you will have all the nutrients and more than you will ever need. The only area where you might have to be a little bit careful is that you take an occasional B12 tablet. But then again, you have many foods that have uh, they're fortified with B12. That's the only area where we have perhaps any any concern whatsoever. I heard that B12 is an airborne bacteria. So if you don't wash the vegetables that you take from your garden, you're probably going to yeah. get it that yeah. way. Don't be too hygienic and you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Hans Deal, it's been wonderful to have you as our guest for Wellbeing Today. Thanks Thank for you. coming in. Our guest today has been Dr. Hans Deal, who holds a doctorate in health science with a master's degree in public health nutrition. He's shown more than 75,000 CHIP graduates how simple lifestyle changes can facilitate the reversal of many of our modern killer diseases. Dr. Deal is Clinical Professor of Preventative Medicine in the School of Medicine at Loma Linda University, California, and founder of the CHIP and Lifestyle Medicine Institute. You can find out more by going to the website chiphealth.com. Dot com. That's C-H-I-P health dot com. I'm Graham Wilson, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.